God, we uh, come before you this evening to worship you, to learn more about you. We ask, God, that you would reveal yourself to yourself to us in uh, a brand new way, a way that makes things a little more real. God, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the promises that you've made to us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here to minister to us, to help us glean what you want us want from us this evening, uh, to help the worship that's in our hearts and our minds uh, to be to be real. The things that we hear from your Word tonight, that those things um, wouldn't just be more head knowledge, but but ways to help us to to walk as you walked on this earth when you were here, Jesus. In your name, amen. Um, many of you have, have asked about this transition that uh, that was mentioned and talked about. Um, we spent last Sunday talking about it, and we also have spent uh, last Saturday, we had several meetings about it. And for those of you, you who do not know, uh, Todd resigned last Wednesday. Um, if you have questions about it, we're going to have uh, our board available. Uh, they'll be in in the chapel after the service, uh, as well as as I after I pray with people here. Um, also, we've set aside uh, those care groups that you guys saw on the announcements Monday through Friday. Those are for you folks, uh, not necessarily to get details and things like that, but it's to support you and pray with you through this time. As uh, for some of you, it might be a little bit more difficult than others. Uh, we've also set aside Thursday evenings to support and pray for the community here and see what God wants us to do and to ask for wisdom uh, in this time. So so that's what that transition is about. Um, so during the transition, the board asked me to teach last week, and I did. Um, and then after the service, they asked me to, to teach a series <clears throat> on a book, and I was glad I didn't say Isaiah. Because... <clears throat> But the first thing that came into my mind was was James. And so that's what we're going to be doing is is going through the book of James. Right after I said James, I said I should have said Philemon. (laughs) Because I've committed for the next, I don't know, year? No, kidding. A couple months to going through the book of James. And, um, well, Philemon, okay. I should have talked, should have thought about it first. Um, so James chapter one, we're talking about trials and temptations. This music stand is trying me, and tempting me to kick it. Okay. Uh, some scholars and, and, and the Christian tradition actually say that James was the son of Joseph and Mary, making James Jesus Christ's half brother. So can you imagine having Jesus as your brother? Why does your brother always get straight A's? It's like, oh, he's God. He's God. You know, why? Why does why does he clean his room without us asking him? He's, he's God, you know, and he wouldn't even really have to clean his room because he'd do like a fig tree thing. Like, right. And be like clean. So it, it's like it's not really fair, but it must have been a really poor upbringing for poor old James. Um but you know what? He ended up as a leader of the church anyway. And even with a perfect older brother, he didn't grow up with the bad or too bad of an inferiority complex. 
Um, so we're going to be listening to one of Jesus's own blood brothers speaking on what's important in our spiritual lives. And James is probably one of the earliest epistles written, and it predates the Pauline epistles. I bring this up because there are some who believe James wrote this epistle to offset Paul's teaching on salvation through grace. But that can't be true because James wrote it first. Okay, going into verse one, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Okay, James is writing to Jewish Christians who live outside Palestine, or he's writing to Christians all over the known Western world at the time. Um, this this epistle. So we're not certain which group he's referring to. But what is really clear in the book of James is that he's writing from a Hebrew mindset. Okay, another thing that's certain about the book of James is that he is writing to believers. So the words in James are for those of us who believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. It is guidance for those of us who know and worship Jesus Christ as our Lord. And you'll notice that James will repeatedly call his readers Brothers, or some of your translations say brethren, which is often a term I use. What's up, brethren? (laughs) So remember that James is writing from a Hebrew mindset, right? So when he uses this term brethren, it includes ladies. You're like, what? Right, bro? (laughs) Because the Hebrew word ben, right, also means daughters unless it's specified in the context. Okay, so what what he is saying is that he and his readers have something in common, that we are children of the same father. So keep this in mind as we go through James, because James is going to be saying more convicting things. But this is to people he accepts and cherishes as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So something interesting in his opening is how how James regarded himself. He saw himself as a bondservant of God and of the and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw his blood brother, Jesus, as Lord and as the same category as God. Isn't that interesting? Triune, Trinity, you're the same as God. Doesn't say Trinity in the Bible, but there. So what is a bondservant? Simply put, it's, it's one who obeys and listens to their master. It's someone who has renounced claims for any of their own rights. They've turned their lives over totally to their master. They don't consider their lives theirs anymore. They've cast away their personal ambitions and they live solely to serve and please their master. Kind of like my Taekwondo students. I'm I'm totally kidding. That's not what. So so that's what James is alluding to. Okay, as one who lives completely for Jesus Christ, his existence was solely to serve God. Verses two through four. My brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Okay, verses 2 through 4 deal with our proper view of trials, or what should be our proper view with trials. See, as we go through life, we experience many trials and many temptations. And what exactly is a trial or a temptation? It's, it's anything that can draw me from my walk in the spirit towards my walk in the flesh. And there's actually great value to this. Let's look at cars, for example. A car goes through crash test after crash test, not because there's some crazy sadistic dude that loves pushing buttons and watching the crash test dummy go through the windshield. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome, right? But it's because they want to prove the worth of that car, right? 
so that the engineers can notice something wrong, then they can address it and improve upon it and then make some adjustments and changes. And they keep running the test until that they know the car is going to be able to protect the people inside from a potentially serious accident. And God allows us to go through these trials and temptations so we can prove to ourselves whether we truly believe what we think we believe. And we're given the opportunity to choose how we live. And when we're put through the test, we we get to see if we're lying to ourselves and it reveals our unbelief. It's important that our faith be tested because, you know, we're, we're so prone to deceiving ourselves. It's important that I don't think more highly of myself than I ought to. It's important that I don't live in a false sense of security. And we need to know the truth about ourselves. And so God allows the temptations so that I can know who I truly am. Think about taking tests in school. Very fond memories for many of you. See, the purpose of the test is to find out how much you've learned, right? That's what God does. He puts us through tests so we can find out how much we have learned. And man, it is really humbling when you thought you did well and you get a D, right? It's like, I thought I knew this stuff. But you don't, because the results don't lie. And trials are not so that God can prove to you how much he knows. He already knows how much he knows. Right? Like your teacher. Like, they know that stuff. They don't have to, you don't have to prove, like, what they know. So, it's, it's for you to find out where you stand. It's to give you a gut check to see if you can really turn the other cheek. To see if we can love those who hate us. To see if we can return good for evil rather than evil for evil. And it's a platform for us to prove our faith. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, God led the Jews for 40 years in the wilderness to humble them and to test them so that they would know that was what was in their hearts and know if they would keep the commandments or not. God didn't need to see what was in their hearts. He already knew what was in their hearts. He wanted them to know. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, we're susceptible to deceiving ourselves. Being a follower of Jesus is more than just knowing the right things, but it's also doing the right things. And the devil knows the right answers to pass a theology exam. In fact, he'll score higher than you and I all combined. And he even believes that there's a God because he's dealt with him face to face. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do not be deceived. So God puts us to the test. He gives us these progress reports to tell the truth about ourselves. And it is in this trial that we can see who we really are. Because it's easy to trick ourselves when things are going well. Right? It's when things suck that we can see our true character. When things aren't good, when we can see the Spirit working within us because we know how we naturally respond to things. And it's only the spirit that we can respond in a godly manner. It's in this testing that allows us to see the faithfulness of God. And it is God who designed such a beautiful way to enhance our personal development. James tells us to view trials as pure joy. Are you serious? This is hard, right? And it's actually a really strange response if you just kind of sit on it. You mean I'm supposed to like 
feeling bad? Like, how's that, you know? So the, usually the reaction to trials and hardships is, is not of joy, right? Usually we get annoyed or discouraged, upset, angry, and wonder, why me, God? You know, what, what did I do to deserve this, God? Like, how is it possible that me, I, I listened to my mom, I cleaned my room, you know? Like, so trials usually result in a negative reaction, but as Christians, we need to look at adversity as an opportunity for growth. We have to choose to become better and not bitter. We can choose to walk in the spirit or to walk in the flesh. And as Christians, we believe in an active, loving God who's involved in every second of our lives, that things aren't haphazard. God is in control and there's a purpose to your trials. And it's these trials of our faith through difficult times in our lives that produces patience produces perseverance, maturity, completeness. Take a look at kids. Do children develop patience or perseverance if if everything is just handed to them? Do children mature if they never have to face any type of difficulty? If you notice some adults that can't handle difficulty as well, you can probably trace things back to their childhood. They were probably either children who never faced trials Or they were children who faced trials without someone loving next to them, kind of guiding them through the process. They were probably pampered through their difficulties. They were probably kept out of difficulties way or they were just simply not supported in their trial. And those of us who are parents or teachers or mentor a child in any any way, we want to see those kids handle adversity and difficulty while they're still around us. Right. We still want to have that influence on them. Why? Because then that way I can coach them through it. You can coach them through it. You can help them make a wiser decision through a hardship. And we can be there to help them mature into healthy adults. Otherwise, they, they grow up to be people who get easily discouraged by the littlest things. And they end up not knowing how to handle like really big things, crushing news. They can't handle it. And instead of handling disappointments of life with maturity, they throw tantrums. They walk away from problems, stomping their feet, saying, I hate you. They go in their room, slamming their door behind them, saying, you don't love me. Sorry, I was just playing in my head what my daughters are going to likely do as teenagers. (laughs) The joys of fatherhood. But it's all part of maturity. They go through these things and we we help them along, showing them how to deal with things properly. And hopefully they don't do those things. But if they do, well, you know, we help them through it. We coach them through it. So something to keep in mind is that it's almost impossible to help people beyond your own maturity level. Keep that in mind as you deal with children, with friends, family, anyone else you can come into contact with. It's important for us to continue in maturation. And if we're able to see trials as means to blessings, it will definitely affect our attitude towards God. We would see that he's a good God and that he only wants what's good for us. And that's why he allows trials. God wants to see us mature and patience is what aids our maturation. Patience is a really funny thing. You don't become patient by trying to become patient. Right. It's not something that God just gives you either. Right. It's, it's something designed in such a way that you have to develop it through trials. It's developed. You can't ask God, God, I want patience now. 
Right? It's a process. You have to go through the process. And as Christians, we often falter by failing to wait upon the Lord. We take it upon ourselves to act independently of God. Now, James is a book of action, but it's not action independent of God. So take a look at Abraham, for example. We know Abraham as someone who passed the test when God told him to kill his son Isaac, don't we? But what did Abraham do prior to the birth of Isaac? God promised him a son, but he and Sarah didn't want to wait. Sarah tells Abraham, you can take my handmaid and have a son through her because, you know, uh, let's not wait. We'll have a son through her. Even though God told them that he would deliver. They didn't wait upon God, even though God promised he would deliver. And the testing of our faith develops patience. And like Abraham, whenever we don't wait upon God, we foul things up. We create problems for ourselves that could have been avoided if we were but patient. And we have to learn to wait upon God. And the awesome thing is that Abraham did learn this. That's how do you think he got through the whole Isaac thing? He learned he learned from his previous mistake because of the testing, which he failed at when he and Sarah didn't wait for God. But he later was able to pass the test with Isaac. That's great hope. And God wants what is best for us. And oftentimes it's through trials. So don't avoid them. Don't complain about them. We are told to glory in tribulations. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And these trials and tribulations, I know they aren't fun to go through while you're going through them, but remember that there are longer-term benefits that will be invaluable to you in the future. Many times we can look back at past trials that we've complained about while we were in them, But now we can look back at them and thank God for allowing those things to be in our lives. If he didn't allow for those tribulations, he wouldn't be all that good of a God. Because he'd be worried about how he could respond or answer to them. But he's confident that he can. So it's not a big deal. He wouldn't be a good father. Bad parenting is when people don't allow their child to grow and learn from their trials. They either overprotect or they don't get involved enough. And God sees trials as our blessings. He sees that our patience is further developed through trials while we wait in faith for, for God to act. Look back at your own life. Can you think back to a trial you experienced that you can now see as a great strength for you now? Can you see how God delivered you from that time? Isn't that wonderful to be able to see the faithfulness and love of God? That's what Abraham did. Psalm chapter 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Moving to our next set of verses, verses 5 through 8. These verses deal with how wisdom comes from faith. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom is usually a trait for the mature. Oftentimes we're so worried about people making mistakes, but, you know, that's part of maturation, which is part of gaining wisdom. See, we aren't born mature. That'd be kind of scary. Whoa, mom, how you doing? Like, 
It talks like you know. Like you know, you're not born that way. So, and and one of the reasons trials are to be valid is because they will be an aid to the process of maturity. It's necessary for that towards maturity. And for those of us who lack wisdom, verse five tells us to ask God, pray. One of the wisest things we can do is to seek the wisdom of God. Ask for it. Notice that James anticipates our fear that God will not answer our prayers. He realizes that some of the people who will read this epistle aren't fully mature yet, that they haven't fully developed their faith yet. So James reminds us that God will answer not because we deserve an answer, but because it's in God's character to be generous. God gives to all liberally and without reproach. We can confidently approach God and ask for wisdom because of his character. He gives wisdom to us freely and doesn't give it to us with unrealistic expectations or conditions. He doesn't hold it over our head saying, I can't believe I gave you wisdom. How come you can't figure that out? Unlike my parents. But they were good parents still. And we say things like, remember, I did this for you, so you owe me. Or I bought this for you, so come on, you can do that. Right. But he gives to us freely. No conditions, no expectations. In, in, in fact, Proverbs chapter four, verse five tells us to get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Verse six through eight. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let now that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double minded, unstable in all his ways. Our attitude should be that of belief, not doubtful or double minded, because that type of faith is like ineffective faith. What a waste. Why even think that way? What is double minded? That's when you say that uh, you believe something and uh, what you say and what you believe, they don't match up. So we're praying, but we, we're only going through the motions and we start with dear and we end with amen, but we don't really believe God's going to answer. See, we're to be single minded and really trust that God is going to give us the wisdom that we ask for. Our commitment to God needs to be a complete commitment to God. You can't put things out there and then take them back. That's just immature and childish. My daughter does that with food. Like she'll offer me, here, daddy. I'm thinking, oh, she's so generous. Ah. <laughs> you can't offer your life and then take it back. You don't give gifts and then take them back, do you? If you do, don't give me a gift ever. Just keep it. Okay. So, so when we ask for wisdom and God gives it to us, we're not just to do our own thing. He gave you wisdom. Don't rely upon yourself anymore. That's just ungrateful. It's unappreciative. It's disrespectful. It's immature. We're not to ask for wisdom and then not follow what the Lord directs us to do. We're not to ask God to reveal his will to us and then just have us reject it after he's offered it to us. If you ask, he'll reveal. Follow. And if you don't know what God is doing or you don't understand, it's not time to take things into your own hands. That's what Abraham did. These verses tell us to not waver. Don't offer things and then take them back. 
Verses 9 through 12 address how humility and faith are our lasting glory. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade in his pursuits. Notice that if you are in a low position of faith, that you shouldn't be discouraged. It's in humility that there's glory. And when we know we are weak in faith, we can grow. And if we have a lot of faith, then we should be thankful and happy that we have that. But we need to continue to renew our faith because you can't live on past faith. You can't live on former faith. We can't get complacent about faith. It needs to be renewed. It's something that has to be worked on. And you don't just get it and then keep it. God loves you too much for that to happen. Once you get it, he gives you another thing so that you can exercise more and you can get more. And those are trials and temptations. You don't just stop. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When we have stood the trial, we receive a crown of life. We have victory over our temptations. Isn't that a great feeling to be victorious? Who likes to run a race and come in last? Like, maybe you're like really generous and you're like beyond, like you're Jesus or something. And you're like, I'm going to let everyone else win because I want them to feel great. And you just like look and oh, that's wonderful. Maybe, maybe like that, but... Responding to the spirit and not to the flesh. What a great feeling to win battles over flesh. Have you ever done it? When there are choices in front of you where you have choices to make between spirit and flesh and what to choose. So do you choose to look at those inappropriate websites? Do you choose to remain upset and angry? Do you choose to take what's not yours? Do you choose to lie? Do you choose to say things you'll end up regretting? Have you noticed how horrible that all feels after? How embarrassed you feel and how you kind of despise yourself? But it feels good to make the right choices and respond to the Spirit and do the right things. It's an awesome feeling. Choosing to seek the Lord. Choosing to love those who hate you. Maybe in the beginning you're like, oh, no way. Like, oh. But after you do it, it's like, that actually felt pretty good. I think I'm going to do it again. Turning the other cheek. Choosing to forgive someone who has offended you. Choosing to give out of your scarcity. Choosing to touch the untouchable. No matter where you are in life, maturity and strength come from withstanding a trial. We know we can withstand a trial because God loves us. And we can trust in that. And in response, we can express our love to Him by withstanding a trial without berating God or complaining to him of the trial. Verses 13 through 15. Okay, these verses tell us how to view the real source of our temptations. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. 
Okay, the source of our temptation is not God, but rather it's our own evil desires. This temptation is different in that it isn't testing to find out where you're at, but it's a solicitation to evil. Notice the progression of temptation here. One is tempted by one's own evil desires. Then when desire is acted upon, it gives birth to sin. Then sin, when it has grown, brings death. Let's talk about desire a little bit. Desire is natural. And in fact, it's God-given. Desire is not a sin. Jesus himself desired Luke chapter 22, verse 15. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Paul desired Philippians chapter one, verse 23. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So desire is not sin. However, in the backdrop of every sin, there is desire. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Interesting terms here, this term drawn away. In Greek, it's excelco. It's a hunting term. It describes game being lured away from its hiding place and into a trap. So is a man whose desire is used to lure him from the safety of self-control, of community, and into sin. The term entice, deleazo, is also a hunting term, but it's with fishing. How someone uses bait to catch the prey. Again, having desires in our lives is not sin. The temptation is not sin. Jesus himself was tempted, right? Luke chapter 4. And you'll notice that in each case, Satan appealed to a natural desire. He was trying to turn Jesus away from the path God wanted. And notice that sin is not part of God's process. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. The tests, trials, and temptations are part of God's process, but sin isn't. So when does the desire turn into sin? Well, we all have desires. And Satan sets out his traps. He attempts to draw us. And enticements. He attempts to bait us. And then we we seize it, right? And the moment we seize it is when it's sin. When we turn our backs and seek the act of our flesh instead of the spirit. When we desire the flesh more than the spirit. When we turn aside from God's path in order to fulfill my own desire. That's when we've sinned. And within each one of us is this desire to be fulfilled. We're, we're really very well aware that there's more to life and that there is a desire for more. Everybody wants it, right? God plants it in there. But people struggle with how their need for fulfillment is to be satiated, don't they? The struggle for fulfillment is further complicated when Satan comes along and tries to toss out this whole thing that we've been talking about with patience. He wants to throw us off our path that God has for us, and he wants us to cut corners, take shortcuts to get something that's supposedly better. And often he does this by having us think that immediate fulfillment, that's your answer. That's what Satan did with Jesus. He tried to talk Jesus out of redeeming us. He tried to talk him out of going to the cross, trying to convince Jesus that there's a less painful way to do that. You don't have to suffer that much. That Jesus could have immediate fulfillment by just bowing down and worshiping him. You know, that's what the devil does now. 
He throws immediate fulfillment before us, just as he did with Jesus. And you know, he's really good at it. Really good. You know why? He's had all of human history to perfect his trade. He knows exactly what kind of trap you're going to fall into, what kind of bait he needs for you. He can specialize how he's going to get you. I like sushi. I already told them what I like. But he knows exactly what each one of you, what traps will work for you, what baits will work for you. And and it's specific to you. He doesn't use the same one for each person. He has a trap and a bait for you. And he keeps telling us that we don't have to follow God's path. You know why? Because that's too hard. That thinking is just way too narrow. You don't have to follow the word of God. That thing's outdated. What are you talking about? God's restricting your freedom. He's holding you back from what you can really have. That's how he got Eve. That was like the first human he was really good at. God doesn't want you to have something good, Eve. He doesn't want you to be as wise as he. So, Eve, you can't eat of that fruit because you don't want me to be as wise. Why wait, Eve? Why be patient about it? You can have it now. Be as smart as God right now. He does that with us now. You don't have to be married to have sex. Do it now. You can afford that. You don't have to save. Forget the other responsibilities and financial things. Just buy it. Buy it now. You can cheat on that test. It'll help you get further in life. Copy the answer. You can take that one. No one will notice. You don't have one. Take it. Your spouse will never know. You're just a little buzz. You can control what you eat or drink. Just, yeah, one more. Have another. She's still wearing clothes. You know when to stop surfing the net. Take a look at another page. You can take care of your own problems. You don't need help. Anything to indulge the flesh and have fulfillment now is what he will throw at you. Anything. It's all about turning you away from God. Satan is not dumb. He is very skilled at killing prey. And I'm not trying to get down on those of you that have fallen prey to Satan and fallen prey to our own desires We've all done it. I'm just trying to share with you how he works. That he wants you to act on impulse and on immediate. Because if you stop just long enough to ask God about a matter, you probably wouldn't get yourself into as much trouble as you have. Whatever happened to denying yourself or your flesh? What happens with following Jesus and staying on God's path, that path to the cross? Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So don't say, God tempted me today. I saw this lady roll hundreds out of her purse and then she left her Louis Vuitton purse down there. Man, God tempted me. No, he didn't. She just forgot her purse. Right? You were drawn by your own desires. Satan was soliciting you. He was drawing you into acting on that. God does put tests in front of us so that we have the opportunity to make choices in the spirit or in the flesh. But God doesn't tempt us to do evil. He doesn't solicit us to do evil. 
Verse 15, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Our own evil desires can bring about death, both spiritually and physically, and destruction in our lives. And you know what? It's not God's fault. Each one of us faces immense pressures, powerful forces to sin. It doesn't help that we're weak. And that the pressures of life that we are faced are great. All the peer pressure. Pressure from folks, pressure from children, pressure from job, all this stuff. But you know what? God is greater than any of these pressures and forces. There are people who are blaming God for their misfortunes when it was their own actions to their downfall. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. James wants to let us know that the real source of evil and good in our lives in chapters thir- or verses 13 through 15, he seems to think that to get this clear, it's going to straighten out our thinking and then it's going to bless us. He spoke about the source of evil. And in verses 16 through 18, he tells us how to view the real source of our blessings. So 16 through 18, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The words gift are interesting in verse 17. Same word used in English, but two different Greek words. The first gift in the verse is this word, dosis. It refers to giving or the act of giving. It's referring to a giver. So this first gift is saying every good gift that's given or it's saying every good giver it's from God. The second gift mentioned in that verse is this Greek word, dorema. This is referring to a gift. The second gift is referring to the gift of God. God's love. God's grace. God's mercy. God's goodness. His kindness comes from above. The source of good gifts, whether the actual gifts or the giver of the gifts, comes from God. Verse 17 tells us that God is faithful, unchanging, and trustworthy in a changing world. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. Isn't that great? He doesn't change the rules. They're the same for everybody. What was the same for Peter, Paul, any disciple you can name back then? It's the same for us. They don't get some special treatment. We're all treated the same. God treats you the same as he treats the Apostle Paul. Unlike us, I treat my daughter better than any of you. You would treat your kids better than me. God views you the same. The way that he loved whoever you think he loves more, he loves you just the same. Isn't that interesting that Satan's quite the opposite? He always tells people how some truth doesn't apply to them, how, yeah, you're the exception, right? You guys can have sex with each other because you guys love each other and it's the same. How can you have faith in God if he changed all the time? Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. According to verse 18, what will these truths produce? It gives birth to our spiritual life and growth so we could be the first of many more truths that are yet to come. If we learn the truths here, we could be at the beginning of a great spiritual growth. And there's something interesting here. It says, of his own will. 
Out of God's own will, he brought us forth. He chose us. Despite of who we are, he chose us. Isn't that great? He accepts you even for all your past faults, your current faults, and your future faults. And there's nothing more or less that you can do for God or to God for him to love you anymore or any less. You are saturated with God's love. He can't give anymore and he won't take any back. He's immutable. He does not change. You can't make him change. He loves you and there's nothing you and I can do about it. What you can choose is whether to accept it or not. He won't force it upon you. But you know what? Know that he loves you. You just need to accept it. There's nothing in the world that you can do to make God not love you or love you anymore. The only way that James and other Christians can say they are bondservants to Jesus is because they are confident that the love of God will never change. And all the trials and temptations that are laid before you are because he loves you. It's not so you can just say and do the right things here on earth. It's so that the testing and what you learn from those things, it frees you so that the the desires you have don't get the best of you, that you don't get trapped, that you don't get lured, baited and caught by Satan. It's for us to gain understanding and wisdom in the chaotic world. It's for us to mature and look at things with eternal perspective rather than fulfilling the immediate and continue on as immature children. If you feel you don't know God, I encourage you to come up here. After the service, pray with someone here. Go into the room, pray with someone. If you ask God to reveal himself, he will. He gives freely. No conditions attached. If you feel you've misunderstood God, come up here and pray with some folks. Talk things out. Just talk. God will reveal himself to you if you would but ask. If we as a church or as individual Christians, we've misrepresented God to you, please accept my apology. I'm sorry. We're sorry as a church. But one thing has never changed despite us being rotten people, a rotten church. God's love. That has never changed. Please accept it. And if you have questions about it, you can come up to me after the service. I'll be up here or any of the prayer people here. And we can talk about it. Let's pray. God, I don't even have the words. You're fantastic. Um, Man, I'm just in awe, God, standing here before you, uh, the way that you bless us with trial and tribulation. That you have enough confidence in us that we would come seek wisdom from you and ask of you. That you have enough confidence in yourself that you would just be able to take care of anything that comes our way. We thank you that you're, you're in control. We ask, God, that you would uh, help us to do the right things. I apologize when we ask for wisdom and, and, we, and we take back by acting out on our own. God, we need your wisdom. In a time like this, we need your wisdom. And Lord, please, please 
We know you give it freely, you give it without condition, and we just ask that you would give us a sensitivity to be able to decipher through all the muck and stuff and just kind of focus on your path for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, God, God's in control. The things that we're going through as a body, he's confident in himself. It's just for us to prove to ourselves where we stand. We're here to pray for you guys. Uh, we'll see you hopefully every day of the week. Bye.